Welcome to the International Conference of Secular AA Europe. This recording was June 19th, 2021. Two Zoom rooms, 12 hours in each room. This is three o'clock from the Tasnua room. Angie A is our host secretary. Our speaker is Neil Sam Samworth, former Strange Ways prison officer, talking about life on the inside, alcoholism, drug addiction, treatment, trauma, problems on the inside, and attempts to reform them. If you're moved by what you hear, check our show notes for uh, Sam's YouTube page. Firstly, I worked in the private sector, joined a prison called Forest Bank in Salford, Salford and Manchester being two separate cities. Um, when I started there, there was no methadone program. E-wing, the induction wing, had two floors. The second floor was for your um, addicts, as it was, and they would be given um, between a five and ten day detox of DF 118. Um, that's all I know them as. I'm presuming some of these guys will know what they are. Um, it was a very basic detox. People did rattle, um, but after the 10 days, um, ultimately they'd be moved off that wing onto normal location. During my time at Forest Bank, the methadone program come in round about 2003 2004 it came into the private sector before the public sector um we had a doctor who was um a sort of locum not really she, she was employed by the private sector but she was very new to the job and overnight as the methadone program come in we ended up with um maybe a population of 400 people on methadone normally um, in the prison, you might have, I don't know, any, anywhere up to 100 addicts, maybe, that, that being at the extreme. But overnight, um, it was basically an interview process. Are you an addict sort of thing? And people were signed up. It was absolutely crazy. Um, nighttime medication went from maybe an hour, an hour and a half to three hours, Um Obviously, the prison wasn't geared up for methadone. Um, the actual process of, of giving out the methadone was basically um, two nurses, ID, an officer actually saying who, who the person was. Um, and and that, that was basically it. It, it, was, it was very, very chaotic. Um, the, the system wasn't set up. Later in Strangewell, I'll explain how the methadone program worked in strange ways. But in Forest Bank, we didn't have the, have a setup where people would come in at night if they were an addict. If I compare it to strange ways later on, then if you were an addict, you, you would see a nurse, you would see a doctor, you would be prescribed a, a standard um, measure of methadone. I'm not sure what that is. Obviously, it wouldn't be a a big one, but you would be seeing the detox doctor within, I think, 48 hours. I-wing was the detox wing, so Forest Bank, we had the DF-118s, then the methadone come in. I weren't really involved that much in it. Certainly, um, at Strange Ways, I was more familiar with it. Um, we actually had 
a, a retina scan put in in the top jail. So the process was, if someone was on the detox wing and they were put on the methadone program, uh, maybe twice a day, they would have a retina scan, they would have an ID card, they would be asked to drink um, a cup of water before they took the methadone. They would then be given the methadone. One nurse would prescribe it. The other nurse would pour it. They had a proper pump with a measure. Um, they would take the methadone and then they would be taking another cup of water after that. Um, that's how it worked. Strangely enough, in strange ways, we had what, what you call the top jail, which is where the detox wing was. And that's how it operated in the top jail. In the bottom jail, it was very different. There was no retina scan. It would be literally two nurses again. People would come to a medication hatch, hand over their ID card. Uh, they would be identified. The methadone would be handed to them and they would take it. Um, there was no water. They weren't taking water before it or water after it. Um, why you would have two separate processes in the same prison, I don't know. But obviously the top jail... Um, where I-Wing, the detox wing was, that was geared up for dealing with addicts. And in the bottom jail, because you ended up with a lot that was spread around the jail, then not so much. So that that's basically how the structure worked. I worked on healthcare for seven years. The worst detoxes um, came on the healthcare, not on the induction wing. I mean, sorry, on I-Wing, the detox wing. We would have them maybe for a week until um, they settled down. Uh, they'd see the detox do doctor over there. You know, you, you will get them in a, shall we say, a healthy state where they could then move to I-Wing. We also had the worst. Uh, in fact, we had all the alcoholics who come in from the streets. A lot of these guys might be in police cells for two or three days. So when they came to healthcare. um they will be put in a safer custody cell, which is uh, there's no sharp corners, no nothing like that. Basically, they used to call them anti-ligature cells. So it had furnishings, um, but they were soft furnishings, as it were. Obviously, the, the alcoholics and the detoxes were horrendous. Three days, they would get their injections there, the vitamins and everything. Again, um, three or four days, maybe five days, they'd be looking to move them on to I-Wing, which was the detox wing. I think the worst I saw anyone was uh, a lad coming off benzodiazepines and um, it was violent. Um, oh, I don't know, maybe 10 days, two weeks. Um, at one point, he looked like um, being sectioned and taken to um, on a on an emergency section to a forensic unit. It was that violent. It was just it was out of control. Um, but thankfully, you know, he he sort of came out the other side of that. So that that's basically how the structure works. Um, on a personal level, from observations, when I was at Forest Bank, when the lads had taken the DF one one eight. You know, they'd done the detox, they'd done the rattle, and they came onto normal location. You would see lads because they were all recognizable, because a lot of these were repeat offenders. You would see them over the course of their sentence, put weight on, maybe start going to the gym and, you know, be, be, look a lot healthier. 
when they came to leave the prison. At Strange Ways later on, when the methadone programme come in, um, not so much. You know, people, addicts, a lot of these guys come from the street, uh, very undernourished, um, you know, didn't look in a good state of health in particular, then they would leave the prison like that as well. Um, there was quite a lot of deaths in custody at Strange Ways that were drug-related. Um, they did have Subitex as well. I, I don't know why somebody would be on methadone and then somebody else might be on Subitex, but Subitex, obviously, it used to be crushed. They'd have that under the tongue, and that, that was the alternative to the methadone. Um, a lot of drug-related deaths. There's a lot of drugs in all prisons. There's no such thing as a drug-free wing. Um People on the methadone would be taking other things. There were prisoners who would take heroin while they were on methadone and basically anything else. So obviously combination of methadone and other medication is quite dangerous. So there was a lot of sort of drug-related deaths, but how deaths get reported, you know, they would be looking – quite often they wouldn't – it wouldn't be straightforward looked at as an overdose. They would be looking at other things. And that that's basically how it happened. As far as, well, my own cousin on the alcoholic front, my own cousin was alcoholic last 20 years of his life. Um, he died at 51 in 2015. Uh, the only time he was sober and healthy was about 2012, he got locked up and he was in Doncaster Prison. And when he came out of Doncaster Prison, his brother met him, uh, he put weight on, he, you know, he was reasonably healthy. For me, that had been the time to get hold of that lad and do something with him. As it were, within weeks, he'd gone back to drinking. And like I said, unfortunately, he died at 51 in 2015. Um, the alcoholics, yeah. Again, obviously, it's different to the, the drug scenario. A lot of them lads, you get to know them, they, if they were on a sentence of six months, when they left prison, you know, you would see them quite fit and healthy. Um, sadly, most of them at Strange Ways, the alcoholics came from the streets. Um, very few were provided accommodation. We had a housing guy who used to, you know, used to work regularly with the healthcare trying to get homeless people somewhere to live. But inevitably, um, basically, they go back onto the street. So, obviously, that was a, just a continuous cycle. Um, that, that's my observations, really. If anyone wants to ask any questions, I'm more than happy to help. Um, like I say, it is, it is what it is, as it were. Hi, Sam. Did they have any um, AA meetings in prison? Um, not as such. The chaplaincy works with a lot of people. We did have organisations come in prison. Obviously, it's quite difficult to um, sort things out like that. I, I am aware that they used to have meetings um, down in the chapel. However... Probably the percentage of alcoholics coming into prison in relation to drugs was drug addicts was, you know, it was quite small. 
like I say, all the lads who detoxed off alcohol were on the healthcare and over the seven years I were on there, maybe we saw two dozen, something like that, round, round about that figure. Whereas the detox wing, um, you know, you maybe get 80 prisoners on there um, detoxing and also H wing, which was an overflow wing. The majority of those lads um, will be detoxing as well. So it was a very small percentage of alcoholics that actually came to prison. So that's that's pretty much what happened. Were you involved in any of the meetings for the addicts? No, that, I, I will tell you something that um, I never understood. I-wing, like I say, was the detox wing. So at some point, the prison got funding and all these cell doors on I-wing had hatches put in. Now, at, at first, people are going to laugh, not yourselves, but obviously people within prison, because they put these hatches in so that at night, prisoners who were detoxing could be given like hot chocolate and sandwiches. Obviously, nutrition is a massive part of their recovery. So they had hatches in at great expense in the doors. So basically, I could open a hatch, put sandwiches, drinks or whatever, and close that hatch, and then the prisoner could open it and obviously get that nutrition. Um, those five, my last five years of prison, those were fitted to the doors and never used. So it never happened. It was just, you know, your medication for the detox, the nutrition thing never happened, which I could never understand. So it's just like ticking boxes. Yeah, pretty much. Um, the funding came from somewhere. Obviously, people would scoff at that. But, you know, taking a step back and looking at it, then it, it makes good sense. But no, it was never used. Um, I'd like to ask if anyone else has any questions they'd like to ask Sam. So you can just unmute yourself and ask if you'd like. And while you while everybody's thinking of questions, I'd also like to ask you, Sam, about um, how mental health problems are treated in prisons. You know, are people taken notice of? Um, massively underfunded prisons. Um, like I say, I worked on healthcare seven years. A lot of people were managed on normal location. Um, healthcare. Obviously, didn't we mental health where I work? That was the inpatient unit. That was a 20, 22 bed unit. So at any one time, we'd have we'd have up to nineteen patients, and it was pretty much full. Vast majority of them were um, lads with mental health issues. There were others on the wings because they had mental health issues. They weren't necessarily on healthcare. They had an in reach team as well, mental health nurses who used to go to the wings. Um, you know, they, they had uh, however many cases under them, but it's massively, massively underfunded. Um, lads would be there for months. There, there was no priority to get someone to a hospital, mental health unit, forensic unit from prison because um, it's looked at that, you know, the public are safe because these people are locked up. It might be that someone could be on the healthcare and we had this, you know, eight, nine months, 
waiting to go to a unit, somebody in the community might take priority or whatever. Obviously, prison is probably the worst place for anyone with mental health. You know, um, it's a negative place. If they're on the healthcare, you know, we did what we could, but you have limited facilities. Um, it's very difficult to run a regime. So the other thing about healthcare um, during my time, it became non-smoking. Like the NHS England is non-smoking in hospitals, then the healthcare became non-smoking. That in itself was problematic. Can you imagine with someone, mental health issues, they come on to healthcare, might not necessarily want to be on healthcare, and a lot of them were smokers, so straight away, you'd be taking the tobacco off them and offering them alternatives. Um, I have major, major issues with prison and mental health. Massively underfunded, underfunded, sorry. Uh, lots of people there who shouldn't be there. No alternative. I think sometimes people, as they go through the court process, it should be dealt with there. And, you know, if, if someone can be managed in the community waiting to go to hospital, then they should be managed there rather than send them to prison. Hello, Sam. My name's yep. Roy. How you doing? I, I'm an alcoholic. And, uh, yeah, I, I used to go uh, to uh, and collect a guy at the gates of Pentonville Prison. Oh, Back yeah. In, yeah, 1980. I was, I was a couple of years sober and I got involved in visiting prisons because... I'd, I'd narrowly missed going myself, you know, yep. in my active years. And uh, it was interesting because, like, AA had, people were already going into meetings in Pentonville. But when I applied, they wouldn't let me attend because I had a few drugs convictions, you know, which I sort of understand they yep. don't want. And that was back in 1980. It's a long time ago. Uh, but But in fact, the governor did, one of the governors, did say, you know, you could meet him at a gate and take him out to an AA meeting. I was oh, most yeah. surprised. And and that's what I did for about six months. He was very close to discharge. Yep. So maybe that's why they were willing to do it. I'm just sort of telling you. But, I mean, at that stage, then that meant I couldn't. Then in later years, like, uh, I was, I always stayed. Part of my service, of my recovery, yep. was always volunteering to go into prisons. And helping people. Uh, not all the time, but, and so later, yeah, we were going into Bedford Prison quite regularly. But, I mean, I'm trying not to be political about it, but, you know, uh, when you say massively underfunded, no, what I mean is, uh, maybe I shouldn't, well, well, this is secular AF and comment yes. anything on this. You yeah, know, please. But, you know, uh, I mean, also, uh, a close relative has been a prison officer for about 20 years. So, you know, he fills me in <laughs> on all the, uh, from the from the, the prison officer's viewpoint. But, yeah. like, you know, we would go in there regularly. Uh, you had to pick up your radio and holster. You had to get trained for going in. And yeah. then we'd regularly have uh, six or eight people coming to the AA meeting in there. And we felt it was very good and useful. I have to say, uh, well, two things. One week we got there and the prison officer that issued the radios, he uh, looked at our IDs, gave us our radios, and then we started to walk away. And he said, hey, you need a holster with that radio. You can't go in without a holster. So we both said, 
well, can I have a holster then? He said, no, we haven't got any. <laughs> uh, he was obviously having a day, but yeah. you'll understand it. That's what I'm telling you. And, and we went, but, but you've given us the radios. We're here. We come here once a month and other volunteers went the other weeks. And we've always gone in and we've always, he said, well, there's no holsters. We've asked to replace them. There's no holsters. And in the end, there was no solution. We had both traveled many miles to Bedford Prison and we both had the hand of radios back in and there was no meeting. You know, I'm just explaining, that's just part of the underfunding that I saw, you know. But I have to say, one of the guys that went to that meeting, uh, well, I didn't know, about two years later, I was at uh, an AA intergroup meeting yep. and uh, he came across to me. That's the sort of planning meeting for AA where you plan to try and reach out to alcoholics still suffering. And uh, he came across to me after the meeting. He said, you don't remember me. I was in Bedford. <laughs> you, you came in and talked to us two years ago. And there, so he's in AA. He's not only in AA, he's already doing service which is the secret of staying sober in AA, you know? So I'm just sort of saying, I know a bit about it from the inside, but, you know, we tried there week after week to try and get, you know, we could see lots of it was being privatized, like the services where you could have met with the people to try and organize for alcoholics. That's all I know about, not so much. Well, they nearly all were both alcoholics and drugs, but we could not get people being met as they came out no. at their most vulnerable moment, you know, and I, I still don't know the solution to that. Maybe it's actually about five years since I did any of this. Maybe in the meantime, somebody's improved on that. I don't know. But anyway, no. I've enjoyed what you said. No, thank you. No, you, you are right. It is, it is very political. Prison is, is still in the dark ages, you know, the thought processes and everything like that. And like I said, mm. um, the lads I can remember, I can't always remember the names, but I always remember the faces, you know, the, the lads who will be coming in. Um, the crimes must, I don't even know what crimes they were committing. You know, somebody had come in for six weeks um, from the streets, alcoholic, do the detox, and then they'd be going back out. So, you know, homelessness, everything like that. They're not, not necessarily a prison problem, but it is a massive issue. A lot of addicts, a lot of alcoholics just go straight back out into the streets. There's no provision for that. But like you said, prisons are, they're not user-friendly. You know, um, I have never been a threat. Most of my problems were with staff in prison and managers, not with prisoners. Um, they are very political. Pra- they're not. Well, if, if you look at the cell doors I was talking about that were there to provide nutrition on nights, Everyone will know if someone's recovering from anything, ill health, alcoholism, drug addict or whatever, nutrition is, you know, part of the recovery, but it was never used. It was put in place and never used. So, you know, it's it's very it's very frustrating. If you're sort of an empath, you know, and you care about people, prison is a frustrating place to be, very much so. Hmm. And I've got a feeling that, when you were allowed to take that guy out, he, w- he would have been low risk at the end of his sentence, but you probably got a very good governor. You know, mm. a good governor in a prison can make a massive difference. Absolutely. Definitely. Mm. Cheers. Yeah. Thank you.
We've got Erica with a hand up. Would you like to come in, Erica? Oh, thanks so much. Um, wow. Um, I'm so glad to get in a little slice of meeting here. Um, <laughs> and so I'm, I'm a, you seem like a really compassionate person. And of course I have, you know, missed the, your, your entire talk, but I can see by the way you listen and respond um, that, uh, you know, you've got a big heart. And, um, and I think we need like a, a massive heart to deal with, um, you know, it's so, you use a word frustrating, which feels like so gentle um, compared to, you know, from what I have seen inside the criminal justice system, uh, maddening, maddening because it is so politicized. Definitely. Here in America, I've been involved with the Innocence Project, you know, just as a community service person, as a business owner, um, you know, for decades employing people in sort of not quite PhD job um, skill set, <laughs> yeah. you know. Um, and, um, there are people, uh, innocent people sitting on death row for crimes they did not commit because of venal prosecutors ignore exculpatory evidence. The cops regularly, um, how can I say, uh, botch evidence. Um, and it's a question of just the numbers game. How many stripes can I get on my epaulette or on my resume um, and, and, but I mean, here's what I, I do want to say, um, the structures of, you know, prison here, I mean, in, in America, we have more people incarcerated per capita than anywhere in the world. Yeah. It, it's a huge industry and it's part of the, um, kind of prison industrial military industrial complex. And it's very, very venal and it's really hard as an individual citizen to think that you can like make a difference. So I've just been educating myself. Um, I've seen the inside of the system in ways that most, I'm going to, I'm just going to come right out and say it, you know, my, most white people never see. Um, uh, I had a, a business partner who, um, well, let, let me put it to you this way. Um, as a, as a, as an individual citizen, uh, if you are uh, arrested capriciously for a crime you did not commit, woe to you, because unless you have the resources, um, you're in big, big trouble, certainly if it's a felony. Um, and these are instances where DNA has nothing to do with it. So there are real breaks in the system about, um, you know, um, eyewitness, eyewitness accounts. Um, uh, there's so many places where junk science comes in. There's so many fractures um, in the process. Even the grand jury process is completely flawed. There, there's an expression of you could, um, a, a grand jury would indict a ham sandwich. So um, I have, you know, survived and come out the other end of really like a film noir, um, it, you know, as a result of what happened to <clears throat> my business partner, the real 
criminal was never apprehended um, and he was ultimately acquitted. But um, I mean, it was, uh, it, it was, it was beyond, beyond words. Um, that being said, um, there are people from the inside that are trying and I really want to support them. It's really hard to keep ethics and um, in the face of uh, enormous societal pressure. What I can say underlying, because I've spoken to, you know, just from my own as a, as a woman in recovery um, and over the years, you know, I've seen, you know, women mandated, you know, to come to Alcoholics Anonymous and, uh, and I think there needs to be more outreach with the secular program, because just like in regular AA, we lose a lot of people to the mandatory God sandwich. Um, and unless you are a really discerning person, you could get really turned off. You know, it, all it takes is one holy roller, um, you know, to you go out the revolving door. So I'd love to see more outreach, uh, more sort of, you know, um, secular AA outreach, um, you know, in rehabs and prisons. Um, but I think going even deeper, um, e even more, even more subterranean is the role that uh, trauma plays in the etiology of alcoholism. It's just really becoming more mainstream, but uh, you would see and I'm sure you've seen a lot of the folks in prison have been um, brutalized as children, sexually oh. abused in horrendous malstorms of alcoholic violence. Um, and it, so none of these people, I mean, look, the reality is we're judged by, you know, not by our talk, but our walk, like what we do. Yep. And in fact, when I do a when when I do a fourth step the, with with sponsees, the last column is how did I retaliate? Like what did I do or not do? And you know, let's face it, in in a in a blackout, people can commit all kinds of horrendous crimes. Um, uh, you know, it's that's the thing with it with addiction. You know, it's we start out the day and we don't intend to do things. Uh, and they just sort of happen um, if there isn't trauma intervention. Because for me, you know, so much of, of my not ending up in prison was about staying sober and understanding all the ways people and situations can trigger that primal abuse. Because I am completely cognizant of the fact that there's a side of me that is an incandescent with rage um, and, uh, and probably under certain kinds of circumstances could do something, you know, really over the top. But because I've in, I'm sober and I've intervened on my own behalf, you know, I've got a fighting chance. Um, so um, this is an, an enormously complex issue. Um, I think you're amazing to be here, to be sharing in the way that you, you are, you know, just from what, from the little I've heard. Um, and this is not something I can really share about in sort of regular AA, or even it's not the first place I go to in secular um, um, 
uh, AA. Um, and to solve this problem, we need a think tank of free thinkers who are not shackled, I use that word very deliberately, shackled by politics and greed and big business. Um, there is a, um, a film just out called The Wisdom of Trauma. It's just been seen about by about uh, five million people now, just come out. And there are huge, it's um, by Gabor Mate, who has um, done a lot of work in this area. And it's, I, I really recommend it. It's called The Wisdom of Trauma. Um, and, uh, and he spends a lot of time um, with the populations in Vancouver and British Columbia, where there's a huge addiction and homelessness problem. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and a woman who goes into the, into the prisons and she does like a circle and she says, step into the circle if dot, dot, dot step, you know, come closer into the circle. She makes a big circle and all the prisoners are in a circle. And she says, um, uh, step into the circle. If you, if you have an alcoholic parent, step into the circle, if you've been, you know, abused and eventually, you know, the circle just, everybody gets really close because I mean, it's very profound. Um, and, um, it takes really brave people to, to do that frontline social justice work and the work, you know, within, within the walls. Um, uh, I can't tell you how close I came to losing um, a dear, dear friend um, for a crime he did not commit. Um, it, it, uh, it went all the way through, will the defendant please rise? Uh, a quarter of a million dollars in bail um, you know, a, almost the loss of a business and a home and everyone, and this is a thing I'm sure you know, that when one person is behind bars, the entire family is behind bars. Definitely. Um, and uh, anyway, I don't mean to lecture, but it's such, oh man, I deal, I deal with the, the, the fallout from that every day. Um, there's a life before something happens and then there's a life after and only someone who's been through it, um, it really gets it. Um, and I think you really get it. And I think you, you, you are, and can be a, like a really powerful power of example and force for, for change and, um, and, and reform. I happen to think it, it, I think it's beyond reformation. I think it needs to be torn down and built anew. Um, so, um, you know, when, when, uh, when the civilized, when countries of the world can seriously conduct their own truth and reconciliation hearings, which are, are needed because people who have been traumatized really need that intervention you know, a truth, like in South Africa, um, but, and may, maybe even more so. Uh, don't know how M Mandela, you know, endured all those years behind prison, and that's a whole other topic. Um, anyway, massive topic. I can't believe this is the meeting that I'm able to jump in on, because I've got a stuff going on for the rest of the day. But um, 
uh, I think you're amazing. Uh, thank you. And, and thank you for the courage, like, to have this segment. I mean, it's, you know, as part of the conference. I mean, wow. Capital, like in Las Vegas sign, <laughs> neon lights. Wow. <laughs> okay. Thanks, everyone. I'm sorry. I, well, you know what? I'm not sorry I went on because, you know, I needed to get it. I needed to get it out. And as addicts, we need to get this stuff out. You know, uh, even after like 30 years, you know, I'm no good if I bottle stuff up. I've got to get it out uh, in a safe environment. And this is a really safe environment, um, I perceive. Um, so thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thanks, Erica. Um, I've put Sam's YouTube channel in the comments in the chat, and I'd highly recommend it. So everybody have a look. If I could just two minutes before we continue, tell people where I'm at. So obviously I've worked in a system. Uh, it made me ill. It was frustrating. Um, a lot of things that Erica's just talked about, um, it's, it's become more real to me. When I left prison, I decided I was going to write a book. It was very truthful. Um, that has sort of, you know, put things out there. I've I've got a second book coming that will be even more hard-hitting. The thing that touched home with me that she mentioned was the abuse. So the people I'm talking to now, which is lads I used to lock up, a lot of them, families of lads are locked up, uh, people who are mentally unwell, that sort of thing. The, the amount of abuse as kids that sort of, you, you know, and a lot of these people have never talked about it. And for me, what, what if, if, you know, if I was a powerful, super powerful guy, I would rip the criminal justice system down. It is wrecked. A lot of it is about money. There's a lot of innocent people locked up. Um, we're not doing anything with people inside prison. But for me, I'd be in schools. I'd have a roadshow of all these people I've met, mentally unwell, ex-prisoners, addicts, the lot. And I would teach kids from four years old to 16 year old about life and that's everything you know it will be delivered in a proper way about abuse what's appropriate what's not appropriate the truth about prison the truth about drugs and everything else but people aren't going to let me do that so for myself i've started my youtube channel but i, I also got involved with social media uh round about christmas it has been overwhelming absolutely overwhelming uh hundreds of messages I get people messaging me from forensic units, people who are sectioned, um, all sorts of people. So for me, I've got my second book. I'm going to put that out there, but I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing because it'd be very easy to get frustrated and walk away because it did make me unwell. However, um, there's a lot of reform groups in this country, all sorts of groups. A lot of them have been around a long time and they're all pulling in different directions. You see, the, the strongest impact in the criminal justice system would be if the prison service and the prisoners got together to sort it out. But all these groups, again, have their own agendas. You know, some are about education, some are about this. But they're all taking a little piece and they're not pulling together. So, yeah, it is very frustrating. Um, but, you know, for me, I can just sort of help one person at a time. I talk to a lot of people. I talk to people who are credibly unwell, uh, lonely, um, you know, 
I don't know, maybe spend 20 hours a week on the phone. I phone people, I text people. So, yeah, it'd be dead easy to chuck the towel in and that. But, you know, people need a purpose. That's my purpose. For me, purpose is everything. In prison, people need a purpose. Addicts need a purpose. Everyone needs purpose. So I'll get off my soapbox now. <laughs> Thanks, Sam. Um, would you like to come in, Otis? Oh yeah, um, cheers for that. That was a uh, that was really good. And um, what the lady was saying before, Erica, I pretty much reiterate what she was saying. If you don't mind, I'm just going to talk a little bit about me, if that's okay. Yeah, yeah. that's fine. Yeah. Yeah, not all right. Um, I was sent to prison when I was 21. It's quite a while ago. It was my very first offence um, related to um, the consequences of alcoholism. Um, when I was inside, I don't recall any support at all i don't recall any don't recall i know they have uh, meetings in there now and different things happen in the chapel at the weekends etc but i don't recall any support at that time and when i was in there luckily i got myself a job on the bins with a couple of the guys in there and we were just literally transporting the hash around and just like distributing that through the through the prison i've never dealt anything in my life so that was quite um bizarre anyway anyway we'll fast forward and then i come out of prison and what i found since which a lot i find a lot of individuals experience also is the discrimination related to actually having a sentence for me i work in forensic services and for every single job i go for you're having to explain your history from 26 years ago i know that um, in the uk they're actually looking into this now but obviously yep. i can understand they have to have it on record because the um the vulnerable people that you're actually working with, but it's such a block. And I get, I get it myself, but I get it with individuals I work with. And you, you really wanting them to do better, and they keep getting blocks. Even basic things for some of them to do voluntary work in a charity shop, you know, because of the index offences. It's like, whoa, 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 but you're okay to walk around Sainsbury's. So you know, it goes, it goes through the board with um, discrimination. Um, the lady before was mentioned about blackouts. I mean. I mean, I went to prison. It wasn't fortunate because it carried, you know, it's carried me around for life. But I was fortunate in the sense I've worked with another individual in blackout who killed their own children and wasn't aware of it until they was in prison, until it had actually sunk in. So, you know, I'm quite fortunate in that sense. But I know these things happen and, you know, they can happen to anyone, whether it's through alcoholism or whether it's through mental health, you know, loss of control and reality. It, you know, it swings with both, um, with both diagnoses. Um, but yeah, that's pretty much um, what I wanted to say. I mean, me personally, I've been out of the system for two years because of my own mental health, which I do think was brought on also with work and burnout and all the stress and all that kind of thing. So I have like was dealing with my first episode of psychosis. So I've been dealing with that. But the positive to that is I've been reintegrating online and reconnecting with my recovery, so to speak, but not just my recovery all the associations and group that are actually available now compared to when I first came into recovery is absolutely, it's absolutely mind blowing. And you mentioned about the staff, um, the, the, the individuals you're working with being sound, but having problems with the staff. I'm exactly the same with the mental health. I find the most complex individuals I've worked with is normally your staff members, not the individuals that you're supporting. Definitely. Thanks Otis. We've got, um, We've got about five minutes left. If you have any any last words, Sam. Um, 
Yeah, well, I, you know, I've always got something to say. Uh, for me, uh, I keep saying to the missus, the missus works with people with dementia and she gets frustrated. Um, in this country and probably where else in the world, certainly in prison, certainly when I've worked with kids, you know, you will get maybe a third of people who, you know, want to help people. They've got empathy and understanding. You'll get a third that are good at the job and a third that just go for the, the paycheck, as it were. Um, you, you, can only, you can only do what you do. I mean, I've, de I've decided, you know, a journey I'm on, I, I was working with a guy who, with my YouTube channel, a tech guy, yeah. Now, he was all about the money. For me, my channel isn't about money. I want people to hear people's stories. Um, if I just take the last two people I've interviewed briefly and talk about them before you sign off, One's a, an ex-policeman, yeah, who was a victim of domestic violence. Um, he wasn't supported by the police force. Um, his abuser, if you want to use that word, was a female policewoman. He wasn't taken seriously as a man, and it's impacted his life. I first met him four weeks ago. He is a different guy. Just by speaking to him, you know, we've got his video on YouTube. Um, he's... He's not well. You know, the f the first time she did anything to him, she kept him in his back and his spine is wrecked. So he will live that. That reminder is there every day. However, he's a different person. Just recently, a very, very good friend, I've interviewed her. She has been hearing voices since she was 14. She's now round about 40. I know we don't discuss women's ages. Um and she's just, you know, she's basically told the world now she had a good day. She always said to me, I, I thought I might never get to interview her because she's had six, seven, eight good attempts at taking her own life. However, she was on a nine out of 10. She hadn't had a nine out of 10 for 30 years. She phoned me. I interview her. She's been interviewed by papers. There's people messaging her. Um, she's had over, I think she said 500 messages over two days on social media, people just saying, you know, how brave you are, thanks for doing that or whatever. So, yeah, dead easy to give up, very frustrating, you know, but I'm just going to be my own little one-man army doing what I can. There you go. Thanks, Sam. I've really, really enjoyed what you had to say. And um, everyone else, thank you for the brilliant questions and comments. I'm so glad I asked you to share today. Um, and I'd like Pleasure. to... Thank you. I'd like to remind everyone about Sam's YouTube channel in the comments. Have a look. I'd like to end this part of the meeting now. Thank you, everyone. For more podcasts like this, secularaa.buzzsprout.com. Thank you for listening to this Secular AA recording. For more information about meetings for agnostics and atheists and Alcoholics Anonymous, visit aasecular.com dot org.